there is a literal war on poor people in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces that we have to address. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to hold the line and actually make the comment about who is the poor and really start thinking about what that means. I know oftentimes when we're out in the street and instead of just yelling like we're singing, like people turn and listen in a different way, right, than if we're just chanting. Hello, audio interference listeners. In this episode, we're speaking with activists, organizers, musicians, and artists who are part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. The movement is building on the Poor People's Campaign of 1968, a national movement led by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We'll focus our conversation on the role music and art plays and has played in this movement. This episode coincides with the exhibition that Interference Archive, Everybody's Got a Right to Live, The Poor People's Campaign, 1968 and Now, which looks at some of the print materials and ephemera that are part of the campaign. The original Poor People's Campaign came to life in 1968 by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the vision was to unite the poor. Dr. King described the unjust economic conditions facing millions of people worldwide. He held up the potential of the poor to come together to transform the whole of society. Through the Poor People's Campaign, he called for a fight against dehumanization, discrimination, and poverty wages in the U.S. The first Poor People's Campaign gathering took place in Atlanta, Georgia in March 1968 and brought together over 50 multiracial organizations across the U.S. to discuss their common needs. Then, starting on May 12, 1968, poor folks and organizers from all around the U.S. came to Washington, D.C. and occupied a strip of land on the National Mall for 42 days. 3,000 wooden tents were constructed for people to camp along the 15 acres of the mall's reflecting pool, now called Resurrection City. Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th before making it to the mall, but thousands came and protested at Resurrection City to honor King's memory and to pursue his vision. The climax of this action was the Solidarity Rally for Jobs, Peace, and Freedom, which was held on June 19, 1968. The rally brought together 50,000 people, along with the 3,000 participants already living in Resurrection City, to rally around the demands of the Poor People's Campaign. This was the first and only massive mobilization to take place during the Poor People's Campaign of 1968. And it wasn't until the Revival Campaign in 2018 that these demands were picked up. What's possible when poor working class people come together? Leadership and unity of the poor is something that the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is focused on. 
not even just the poor and dispossessed in this country, but also how we're connecting internationally. And what is possible when poor and dispossessed people rise up as one, understanding who the enemy is and uh, understanding that we no longer can afford to be divided and fight one another. That's Sierra Taylor, activist and artist from South Florida, who's based in New York, involved with the Poor People's Campaign, and also has helped to start the People's Forum in New York. New York-based musician, playwright, visual artist, and activist Pauline Pisano continues, describing the central pillars of the campaign. Martin Luther King talked about um, consumerism, militarism, um, and racism. And so those are the three tenets that we're working on. We added ecological devastation because since 1968, we are facing a huge climate problem. Um, and I also find that it's really important for us to hold our analysis of who the poor is when we talk about climate change because it really breaks down borders. And that's really what we need to do. We need to break down borders and break down walls. Um, and we can do that when we start to really ask ourselves what's happening, who benefits, it's quite a powerful thing to think about um, and how to break down the borders in yourselves too. So the Poor Campaign is very much about an inner shift and an out outside shift for me. And it's not just having this analysis, but it's like how are we actually using it so that when we're organizing, we're bringing in environmental activists, we're bringing in you know religious clergy, we're bringing in folks that are, that are talking about um, the economy. The campaign is intentional about building with poor and working class folks who are clear about who they are and what is possible when we're unified. The new Poor People's Campaign was launched by Reverend Dr. William Barber and Reverend Dr. Liz Teo Harris 50 years after the original movement in 1968 to pick up where Dr. King and other activists left off. The current uh, formation of the Poor People's Campaign um, really, you know, has been a continuation of the 1968 campaign uh, with some of the organizers that were part of that original campaign coming out of the welfare rights movement um, and then later uh, involved in a lot of um, homeless organizing as it started to emerge in the 80s and 90s. Um, and we kind of trace our roots to some of that work in addition to um, the work that Dr. King and SCLC were doing to try to pull a lot of the groups that came together to build the Poor People's Campaign in 1968. That's Sharon Rebar, a cultural organizer at the Poor People's Campaign and co-director of Theomusicology and Cultural Arts. And so it was really, you know, a coming together of um, you know, some various organizing that came um, from a few different networks. Um, none of our individual organizations was going to be enough to uh, take up this fight. Um, but we all were looking at this anniversary as a moment to, to build something that could actually connect groups across the country and really revive um, that spirit of that campaign. Sharon talks about how the Poor People's Campaign defines poverty and understands who the poor are. There are 140 million poor and low-income people in this country. That's one in two people. Um, and so, you know, the way that we often talk about poverty, you know, is to create this, you know, this story that it's a very marginal population. Um, and, and we're really trying to break open that, you know, it's, it's, it's one in two people and, and it's that many more of us that are one paycheck 
or one healthcare crisis away from, you know, experiencing homelessness or, or being impoverished. On June 23rd, 2018, a large 40-day protest was held in Washington, D.C., called 40 Days of Moral Nonviolent Direct Action. The protest brought together low-wage workers, clergy, artists, and community activists from across the U.S. During the six weeks, close to 3,000 individuals were arrested for doing civil disobedience in their state capitals. We launched the 40 Days of Moral Action on Mother's Day, uh, partly because in 68, that was when the campaign was also launched uh, with the National Welfare Rights Movement um, organizing a Mother's Day march in 68. And because we came out of that legacy and continue to work with folks in the welfare rights movement, we wanted to mark that day and, and lift up um, you know, the issues that have been uh, that mothers and children have been facing as well as our families generally. And each week we talked about the different pillars of the campaign and we used art to showcase it. So we were able to create and be together and sing songs together. We took different issues within that the campaign platform was taking up and, and kind of carried them through in the six weeks. Um, you know, and so we also looked at issues of health and a healthy environment and how do those intersect. So people that are, you know, facing issues of coal ash um, in North Carolina, how does that connect to, um, you know, folks that are fighting for Medicaid expansion because, you know, they're having to deal with, um, you know, having to suffer with cancer because of the coal ash issues. So there's, there's interrelation of issues. The campaign puts emphasis on making space for folks to tell their stories and share their experiences. Sharon explains. You know, something that's very important to the campaign is not only shifting the narrative around poverty and, and racism and, and the war economy and, and the problems of the environment, um, but also we talk about shifting the narrator. Um, and so each week when folks would go to the state capitals, it was really important that we created space where people could tell their stories of what was happening in their communities. Um, and so, you know, at any rally or at, we had basically people testifying from all over their state about how they were being impacted in different ways by these these different evils. I want to lift my people up. They are not heavy. I want to lift my people up. They are not heavy. I want to lift my people up, they are not heavy. If I don't lift them up, if I don't lift them up, if I don't lift them up, we will fall down. I love that song, it's so nice. With a firm belief in the significance of music and art, the campaign published a songbook called We Rise, a movement songbook, to help bring people together, build confidence and courage, and build a collective identity. The compilation of movement music includes a series of songs and images of collective action and movement by the print collective Just Seeds. We would also tie kind of the themes of the week to the music um, to really help to 
um, you know, advance the message through the music um, and to also create this kind of unity across the country. We talk about it being one band, one sound um, and being able to amplify our message through the music. And so the songbook was really a resource created, um, you know, leading up to the 40 days um, so that people would be able to, you know, recapture the importance of movement music um, and really thinking about participatory singing. Music and art play a role of creating a culture of inclusion, community building, and support. But also, developing the movement's culture is essential when competing against more wealthy corporate cultures, Sierra explains. Most artists, or the artists that I know, are working class people that are impacted by the economic structure as it stands. And with the attacks on poor working class people by, you know, the ruling class, by these big corporations. They're able to manipulate our people through the arts, largely. And so you find like these scrappy little movements literally competing with corporations, not only for the attention of our people, but also for like the heart and soul of our people. And so having artists, having cultural workers, those who need to create and sell their art to make a living, having them a part of this movement is essential. And not as props, not as ornaments, but as folks who a, are able to develop an analysis. And then two, like having artists a part of strategy, having artists a part of political education. Art practices used in the campaign, like quilt making and singing, are also strongly connected to social and political movements from the past. Continuing to use this media are a way to align with activists and organizers who've come before us. We went to different places around the country we had people decorate these fabric squares. They could put a quote, they could draw, you know, whatever they wanted to put on that square they could do. And we patched that quilt, like those, those things together to weave a quilt. And thinking about enslaved folks signaling one another through the use of quilts. Thinking about the songs that were used, you know, like Wade in the Water, you know. When dogs are after you, a way to get rid of your scent, wait in the water, follow the drinking gourd. Reminding us of our humanity, I think, is a big part of the reason why the arts are so important. Sharon continues. I think oftentimes arts and culture are taken for granted a little bit in our organizing. Um, and we really wanted to place this work at the center of the organizing and bring folks that you know, we're from impacted communities that are artists and cultural organizers and um, and be able to like build that solidarity from the ground up. I know oftentimes when we're out in the street and instead of just yelling, like we're singing, like people turn and listen in a different way, right? Um, than if we're just chanting. And if we have songs that really carry our message, then we're able to, um, to let people hear in a different way. Well, somebody's been hurting my brother, and it's gone on far too long. Yes, it's gone on far too long. I tell you, it's gone on far too long. Oh, somebody. A 
huge thank you to Sierra, Paulina, and Sharon for speaking with us for this episode. To learn more about the Poor People's Campaign, stop by Interferent Archive while this exhibition is on view through June 23rd. There are also links in our show notes with more information about the movement. This is the last episode of our spring 2019 audio interference season. We're taking a break for the summer, but we'll be back again in the fall with a brand new season that explores the culture of social movements globally. While we're off enjoying the summer sun, We'd love to hear from you with feedback about our episodes so far and about what topics you're interested in learning about in the future. Please check out our show notes for a link to a survey with just a few brief questions for you. Thanks, and we look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteered powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. And we won't